0: comes from the Gospel of Matthew, the 14th chapter. We're going to look at the 28th through the 32nd verses. Matthew, the 14th chapter, the 28th through the 32nd verses. Once you've found your place and put your finger in your Bible, because I want you to keep your Bible open to that place, I would ask you to look up so I'll know we're ready to move on. It's really important as I move through the passage that you do the same thing visually. So please, keep your Bibles open and go verse by verse with me. Let's not do this by ourselves. Let's get some help. Let's ask the Lord to bless us. Father, we ask for your insight and your wisdom and ask for the comprehension that only you can give us. That we might record, not just in our minds, but on our hearts, what you have to say to us today, and that we might take it home and that it would make a real significant difference in the way we walk this next week. Bless us, I pray, in Christ's name, amen. I want you to go someplace with me. I want you to go to the Middle East. I want you to go to the southern end of the Sea of Galilee. And I want you to stand at that southern end of the sea with the Jordan River flowing out of the Sea of Galilee on down toward the Dead Sea. But I want you to look to north. Across the beautiful, deep... Thank you, Rush. Across the beautiful, deep blue waters of that, what really is a lake. I want you to look at the western shore. And on the western shore, what you're going to see, if you look carefully, is you're going to see one town, Tiberius, And then the rest of that shore stretching to the north is a very gradual slope. And it makes its way all the way up onto a plain and over to the Mediterranean Sea. Now what's significant about that is, when the prevailing winds from the west come off of the Mediterranean, they come down that gentle slope at tremendous force, oftentimes driving rain, and if you look carefully, you can see the erosion in the western slopes. And that wind comes down and it careens off of the water, and it rushes to the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. So oftentimes the water's turbulent. Oftentimes it's dangerous. Now I want you to look on the eastern shore. There's some settlements at the southeastern corner of the sea. But as you go up that eastern shore, suddenly you encounter 2,600-foot-high cliffs, Imagine the water coming and the wind coming across the surface of the Sea of Galilee and hitting that 2,600-foot-high embankment. The wind careens off of that, creates a hydraulic, and comes back down and pounds the Sea of Galilee, compounding the rough waters. The passage we're going to study today tells us about a time when the storm came not from the west off the Mediterranean, but occasionally it comes from the east. It comes over what we know as the Golan Heights, those cliffs, and dips down onto the top of that sea, stirring the sea up even more. If you look in the Revelation, the 21st chapter, there's a A statement made by our Lord through John, and the statement is that God's going to come and create a new heaven and an earth at the end of time, and that when he does that, there will be no more seas. Well, lots of us are fishermen. And I read that, and I thought, well, that can't be heaven. There won't be a place to go fishing. Charles Spurgeon, the Reformed Baptist preacher of note from England, explains it this way, he said it's not talking about literally seas disappearing because most of the time in scripture when you read about seas there's turbulence it endangers people's lives and what he's saying is all that will be tranquil the water will no longer threaten us and there will no longer be seas and turbulence I was relieved to find that out So I will take my fishing pole with me when I go. But when you look at the Sea of Galilee, it's 13 or 14 miles long. It's about seven miles wide. And in its deepest point, it's about 140, 145 feet deep. And it's some 650 feet below sea level to the surface. It's quite a body of water. If you look due north, what you see are hills. And the city of Capernaum is up there on one of those hills. But there's a lot of hilly land. And in the passage that we're going to look at today, Jesus is ministering, as he did many times, on those hills. 5,000 men plus wives and children had gathered to hear him. That's a sizable congregation. When you look at the total population, he had a lot of people following him and coming to hear him preach. And as the day wore on, his disciples said, you know, Lord, you need to disperse these people and send them home, and we need to go to a village and get some food for the night. You remember what Jesus did? He didn't send them home, not yet. He took a few fish and a few loaves, and he multiplied it, and he fed that huge crowd of people. And after he had fed them, he dispersed them and told them to go home. And he said to his 12 disciples, I want you to get in that boat, and I want you to sail from the northern end to the southeastern corner, and I want you to wait on me. Well, some of those men were fishermen. Being on that lake was not a problem. They jumped in the boat, and they started out. And the winds to the east started to be stirred. And they came across the top of the Golan Heights and creamed down on the lake. And as you read through the passage just prior to the one I'm going to preach on, what you see is the disciples had started to make their way over this five or six-mile diagonal course. And by 3 o'clock in the morning, they were still several miles from shore because the winds were so fierce. Jesus, after the disciples had departed, went up into the hills, which he would do with some regularity. And he would do what you and I need to regularly do. He would withdraw by himself to a place where nobody would talk to him, where there would be no interruption. And there he communed with God in prayer. You have such a place? It's so essential to our spiritual well-being that you have a place where you can get off and listen and talk and commune with your creator, the one who loves you. Well, Jesus did that, and and interestingly, he came back down, and sometime after 2 o'clock in the morning, he got back down to the upper sea, and he walked out on the water. There's a leap of faith. I read one historian who's a great historian who said, well, there were stones and he was walking on stones and they were just under the surface. Well, that's kind of tough if it's 140 feet deep. Those are big stones. And what Jesus did in the midst of a huge storm is he started walking across the face of the water. And as he caught up with the boat, That in itself is a miracle. Because those 12 men couldn't get that boat to land. And yet he could walk through the same waters and winds and caught up with them. And as he approached them, they saw him walking on the water. And scripture says they thought it was a ghost. And they were absolutely petrified. Some of those men lived on that Sea of Galilee, it's where they made their living. They'd never seen anything like that in their lifetime. And and here comes Jesus walking toward them. And they're so afraid. And they call out and they say, Is that a ghost? And Jesus responds and says, Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. It's me. Divine appointment. Jesus had an agenda that morning. In the dark in the howling wind, in the splashing of water, Jesus had a reason for going to his disciples. That's where our passage picks up. I want you to look at it as I read through it for us, and I want you to follow along. I'm reading from the Gospel of Matthew, the 14th chapter, and I'm starting with the 28th verse. Listen very carefully, for God is about to speak to us. Peter said to him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, come. And Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came toward Jesus. But seeing the wind, he became frightened. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and took hold of him and said to him, You of little faith, why did you doubt? When they got into the boat, the wind stopped. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. I think there's a key word in the very first verse. It says, Peter said to him, Lord, if you command. And what he was doing is he's looking at Jesus, who's walking on the water, and he's saying to Jesus, I'm not getting out of this boat unless you tell me to. Now, you know why that's significant? In Matthew, we're told in the Sermon on the Mount that we are never to test God. Not ever. We're not to come up with something that says, God, I want you to prove yourself, so you do this or you do this. And we're told not to do that. But if you go back into Malachi... You see, God does sometimes say to us, here's something I command you to do. I want you to put me to the test. Can you hear the difference? One is initiated by man. One is initiated by God. When God says, I want you to do something by faith, he has something in mind for us, and he's saying, y'all come, you hear? Come do this. But if we come up with the idea, it's spiritual arrogance. When you read through the description we have, Peter wasn't being spiritually arrogant. Peter was calling out to Jesus and saying, Would you ask me to come? I'd like to do that. I'm motivated to do that. By faith, I would like to come to you. And Jesus says to him, Come. And Peter gets out of the boat and he starts to walk across the water. That's a faith being put into action. That's starting to do something where you're trusting God is going to take care of you, knowing that it's 140 feet deep, knowing the wind is blowing and that you could drown, but knowing that the one who has said come is going to take care of you. There's something very positive about that. And the positive thing is that what Peter's doing is he's putting some action with his faith. Oftentimes what we do is we study the Word, we pray, we are in all kinds of support groups spiritually, and we keep getting built up and built up, and oftentimes we don't put any feet to it. And what the Lord is saying to us through Peter is, I want you to get out of the boat And I want you to get your eyes fixed on me. And I invite you to walk with me. I invite you to come and trust me. You know the other really significant thing that's happening when Peter gets out of the boat? Peter was afraid just like the others. And then suddenly, when he sees Jesus and realizes who he is, he wants to live by faith. He wants to walk by faith, not by sight. And that's what he does. Now, I don't know how you need to get out of the boat. I don't know what it is in your life that you're not doing that God wants you to do. But you know, and if you don't, ask him and he'll reveal it. He doesn't want us to stay in the boat. You know the negative side of all this? There were 11 other men in that boat. Scripture doesn't tell us any of them got out of the boat. There's a guy named Matthew in that boat. He's a tax collector. He was probably counting the cost and was consumed by that. Another guy named Thomas, he's known for doubting. Probably sitting there saying, well, look at all the things that could happen. I might get in that water and might go down and drown. Each one of them would approach that human experience differently. And depending on where their mind and their heart were, would determine if they'd ever get out of the boat. And there's no record that they got out of that boat. What a shame that you and I have been touched by the Holy Spirit, that we have been called by him to be his children. He has evidence for us through the death of Jesus and his bodily resurrection, that he is God, and that he is our God, and he's ready for us to walk with him, and we don't get out of the boat. And sometimes we go through a whole lifetime, and we never get out of the boat spiritually. I challenge you, go home and think about it. If you're just absolutely dead in the water spiritually, and you're not growing, know it's time for you to trust the Lord more. To trust him with your life, with your health, with your money, with your family, with whatever it is that's precious to you. And know that he is trustworthy. And know he absolutely will take care of you. Get out of the boat. If you look on just a bit more, you'll see in verse 30 the description of what happens to Peter. After he gets out of the boat and he starts to walk, and suddenly there's a lack of faith. You and I read something interesting this morning. I hope that, and said it, I hope that you've paid some attention to it. It's from our larger catechism, which is one of the standards of our denomination. And it was question number 78 Whence ariseth the imperfection of sanctification in believers? Know what the transliteration of that is? Why don't we always walk by faith? Why is it so many times we who know Jesus are retarded in our spiritual development? The answer is given, the imperfection of sanctification. That sanctification is us being set aside and growing in our faith. The imperfection of sanctification in believers arises from the remnant of sin abiding in every part of them, and the perpetual lusting of the flesh against the Spirit. You and I are saved by grace. Our position before God has changed if we've accepted Jesus. We are no longer standing here judged on our way to eternal damnation. If we have accepted Christ and we're new people in Jesus, our position has changed, and now we're standing on our way by his grace, to heaven. And nothing's going to change that. God has done that for us. We can't lose what we didn't do. So we're on our way to heaven. But what we're being reminded of in the larger catechism is this distance from that position to this position is filled with all sorts of tensions. And the sin that was so much a part of us when we were born is still here and it's still tugging at us And when we accept Christ for the very first time in our life individually, there's now a battle between the old self and the new self. Before we accept Christ, there's no battle. The old self dominates. But now we got this conflict going on and the Holy Spirit taking us one direction and that old nature trying to pull us back. And when you look at Peter, he can... Lately goes just like a wave. One moment he's high spiritually and the next he's low. I don't know that he ever had any just normal times. So at one moment he's in the boat, he sees Jesus walking on the water, he thinks it's a ghost and he's scared to death and the next morning moment he gets out and gets in the water and starts to walk toward Jesus. And now he starts to look around And instead of looking at Jesus, he starts to look at the circumstances of his life. I know there's nobody in this room who's ever done that. And when you start looking at the circumstances of life, you start to walk by sight, not by faith. And you know what comes next. It dominates you. It consumes you. And the whole concept of God starts to fade, and your old nature starts to take over. And you find yourself afraid. You find yourself preoccupied with thoughts that you don't need to have. And you start to sink spiritually. You know what that sinking is all about? Picture Peter, he's looking at the wind the waves that are being moved by it. The water that's splashing on him. And as he takes his focus off Jesus, he starts to feel the water come up around his feet. And then his ankles. And then his calves. And then his knees. Ever tried wading in water? Try wading in water when you can't touch bottom. And then the water continues to rise. When you take your eyes off of Jesus and you look at the stuff that's all around us, it will scare you to death. And it will consume you. And you will start to sink spiritually. Anybody ever have that experience? Don't raise your hand. I'll raise mine for all of us. I told somebody this morning, I wish every day was Sunday. Boy, I am okay on Sunday. But it's those other six days. I start looking at circumstances, just like you. And it scares us to death. And suddenly we forget that God is with us and that we belong to him. And we get to be schizophrenic, spiritually, with all these highs and these terrible lows. Peter calls out, and you can sense this from the verse in Scripture. It's like he didn't just call out once. He called out repeatedly, and he said, Help me, Lord! Help me, Lord! And Jesus immediately, Scripture says, immediately reached out with his hand and grabbed Peter. There's something beautiful about that reaching out immediately. Immediately. So often he does that, and a lot of times we don't even realize he's done it. But we get into a panic, we get into a situation that's so far beyond our control, and emotionally and intellectually and spiritually we start to drown, and he reaches out and says, no, you're not going there. And he stabilizes us. And things kind of quieten down, and then a while later we look back and say, wow, I don't feel so desperate. I don't feel so cut off. I actually feel close to the Lord again. And that's the result of him having reached out and taken hold of us and saying, hang on a minute, this is going to pass. I'm going to take care of you. You ever been there? He's so faithful. He loves us so much. I love the image that when we die... At the moment of death, we're embraced by the Lord. No time passes. He extends that hand and says, come into my heaven and abide with me. All is well. Beautiful assurance. An assurance that we need to hang on to. If you look down at verse 31, you see Jesus' response to Peter. He held his hand out, but then he said to Peter, you know, you're a man of little faith. I'd like the Lord to say, hey, Bill, well done, good and faithful servant. But if he looks at the totality of my life or yours, he might also say, boy, there were times when you had little faith. You see, it's all about faith. He's given us all the resources we need to walk by faith. And when we don't, he says, what are you doing? Why do you have so little faith? And then he said to Peter, why do you doubt? Because doubt is the driving force behind not having faith. Our minds are interesting things. I keep thinking that somebody is going to write something that will really capture what's going on with our brains. Our brains get us in so much trouble. They allow us to focus on things we shouldn't focus on. They allow us to conceptualize things. We have no business conceptualizing. And where that takes us is into a very dark place. It causes us to doubt. So it's not surprising when you turn to the 12th chapter of Romans and you start to read Paul's words, and he said, what's important is the renewing of your mind. Your mind is messed up. Let's get it fixed. And when we start to think right, doubt doesn't move into our equation. But if we don't think right, we make room for doubt. So what the Lord is saying to us through Peter's experience is, don't go in that dark corner. Don't allow yourself to go there and control your brain. Pray. Read scripture. Get to know the Lord better. Walk in the Spirit and there'll be far less opportunity for you to doubt. And you will get to know the Savior in a whole new way. You know, what's going on in your life and mine is so simple. We've been saved by grace, and yet, sometimes we don't act like it. Sometimes we don't live by faith. Jesus wanted to make a statement to those disciples in the boat and to Peter, so you know what he did? It's recorded for you in verse 32. It simply says, when they got in the boat, Peter and Jesus, what happened? The wind stopped. That was kind of like the emphatic period at the end of a sentence. Jesus, without a word, was saying, don't you realize I'm in control of all this? Don't you realize I allowed the wind to be there and now the wind no longer threatens us? And he was saying, nothing's changed on my side of this equation. It's all changing on your side. I'm the constant. I want you to know something. Whatever it is that's challenging us, whatever it is that's facing us, A God who created nature is in control of nature. And he is the same God who's going to work in your life and my life. And he's not ever going to leave us. So by faith, you can walk with him. You can get out of the boat. It's okay. Do you understand? You know, my prayer is as I worked on this sermon, my prayer is that I'll get out of the boat and stay out of the boat, and not look around and go grove and trying to get back in the boat. Instead, that I'll learn how to walk with Jesus, and that's my prayer for you. That in lockstep, you and I might learn.